This morning I'm going to be speaking from 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read verses 23, verses 23 through 25. <clears throat> there are a lot of different themes that we could draw from the Lord's Supper. And we are going to be taking part in that this morning. And I'm sure that I'm, I'm about to give you a list here of themes that we can draw from this celebration. And I don't think my list is all inclusive by any means. And perhaps uh, as you have com- contemplated the Lord's table in your own life, the Lord has brought thoughts to your mind. Different themes have come to mind as you have prepared to partake. And in fact, I hope that's the case for you. As a Christian, um, there's a, an idea among some people that as Christians, we just kind of leave our brains out and everything is by faith. But hopefully the Lord has spoken to your mind and in times past when you've come to the table, he has dealt with you about different themes that we learn from the Lord's table. You can actually learn from the Lord's table. I believe in both the word and the table. They can both be instruction for us. So the five themes that I came up with were remembrance, fellowship, thanksgiving, proclamation, and self-examination. That's a five-point sermon. I hope you guys are ready because we're going to be here for about two and a half hours. No, just kidding. Just playing. We're only going to concentrate on one of those themes this morning, and that is the theme of remembrance. And even with remembrance, I've broken that down even further. But we're only going to cover one little part of what it means to remember. And personally, I've wondered why we don't partake of this sacrament more than we do. I'm fine with it being once a month. I'm fine with it being once a week. To be totally honest with you, we meet in the Lord's house with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. Why not come to the Lord's table? But regardless of how often we take communion, I would be encouraged, and I hope you would be encouraged also, that if each time we come to the table, that we pick one of those themes in our own heart and our own mind, and we think about it whether it be remembrance or a proclamation or a fellowship or thanksgiving, that we would take the time, set aside, and meditate on those things. So today we're going to concentrate, like I said, on that very first theme, that theme of remembrance. So what do we remember when we come to the Lord's table? That's the question. What do we remember? So with that long drawn out introduction hear now the words of the living God from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25 we read for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this here it is In remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
I'm going to pray at this point one more time. I know we've prayed a lot this morning, but I always pray before I get into my commentary. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with a grateful heart. Jesus, we are yours today, not because we chose you, but as it says, as, as you told your disciples so long ago, you chose us. So Lord, cause us this day to remember you. Cause us, Lord, to have a longing for you in our heart and deal with our hearts today, Lord. Use your servant to rightly divide the word of truth and proclaim your word for your glory. We ask God that you nourish us as we partake of your word, but also as we partake of your table. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've entitled this sermon, What Do We Remember? What do we remember? And as I ask that question, I'm not asking, um, like, what do you remember about all of life? What do you remember about your life experiences? Or what do you remember maybe from grade school, way, way back, something you learned in school? That's not what I'm asking when I say, what do we remember? What I'm asking is, is what do we remember in the sacrament? What do we remember when we come to the Lord's table? Well, first off, I think we should remember, and this is my first point here, the suffering of Christ. The suffering of Christ or the death of Christ. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 10, it says, it's predicting the Messiah. And it's a familiar passage, but I'm going to read it this morning. It says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Now the prophet Isaiah here is talking about the Messiah, and he is talking about the suffering that the Messiah would go through. And certainly... We could talk today of how this prophetic message from Isaiah was fulfilled as we study the Gospels and we go through the life of Christ and we get to that point where he was uh, put on trial 
and we know all about how he was beaten and he was mocked and he was spat upon and he had the crown of thorns that was driven into his head as they mocked him. And I don't want to be too crass or gross this morning, but we need to understand when it says here that they spat upon him, it wasn't just a little flick. The idea there in the, in the text is that they actually kind of dug down, if you know what I mean, and spat upon Jesus, a man familiar with suffering. And after all of this, after a, a joke of a trial and a, really a mockery of the justice system, they nailed him to a tree. And he was further stabbed in the side rather than breaking his legs. And of course, we, many of us know this story very well. It's the story of our Savior and his suffering and his death upon the cross. All of this to fulfill the prophecy. Even the fact that they did not break his legs. In the prophetic voice of Isaiah, we find that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities. It says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. You see, Isaiah is talking about the people of God here being healed by the stripes that the Messiah would take. And these beatings were so severe, history tells us. And the Romans had perfected this, you know. They had perfected how far they could take a man before he would actually die. They were excellent at torture. And there were many times where they would go too far and they would literally whip a man to death. And we don't really see this kind of thing in our culture today. But in ancient Roman society, um, crucifixion. Uh, of criminals that had committed crimes against the empire or any time that they went to war, the the crucifixion put fear into the hearts of Rome's enemies. And the beating that Jesus took, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase, a cat of nine tails, where it was a whip with actually nine strips on it, and they would whip him. Even just one hit with that, I think, would knock me down to my knees. And they beat Jesus. We need to think about the suffering. And I want you to imagine if you can, and I know this is hard. It's hard to imagine this, but put yourself in the place of the one who was accused. Imagine that you're innocent. You know that you are innocent. And you've been brought into court on trumped up charges that are not true. And you know, also, you know that it's all lies. Everything that's being said about you, it's all a lie. And the prosecution produces false witnesses against you. And they even use your words and they take your words that you actually said, but they take it out of context so they can twist it and put you on trial. And imagine if you can, it's hard, but go with me on this, that you have the power to make it all stop. You know they're lying. You know the charges are false. You know the whole trial is a sham. And you have the power to make it stop. And with a single word, you could call angels from heaven and stop the whole thing. And wipe it all out. 
But imagine that having that kind of power, that you remain silent. Imagine you don't even defend yourself. Now, we prayed for our nation earlier this morning, which I'm glad that we did that. If there's ever been a time that we need prayer, it's now. And a lot of people don't know this, but we have amendments in our Constitution that actually come from a biblical worldview. And I promise this isn't going to be a history lesson, and I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of politics. I'm just going to tell you what our Constitution actually says. There's a Fourth Amendment. Does anybody know what the Fourth Amendment is? It is the right to privacy. Okay, that's where we get a right to privacy. In other words, the state or the police or the military or whoever cannot come into your property and take your things and search your things and look for evidence. They can't do that unless they have enough evidence to present to a judge that would justify a warrant or permission to come into your property and to do those things. It comes from a biblical worldview. In Jewish law, I don't know if you knew this, but you had, you had the right, and this is where our Fifth Amendment comes in, and my point to you is that the people who wrote our Constitution had a biblical worldview. Now, we could talk about whether or not they were truly Christians or if they were theists or whatever, but the point is they had a biblical worldview. They were influenced strongly by the law of God. And the Fifth Amendment is the one that says that you have the right to remain silent. The right to remain silent. If you've ever heard someone say, I plead the Fifth, that's what they're saying. I have the right to remain silent. Well, what's that all about? It's about self-incrimination. That's what it's about. In other words... Prosecution is making a truth claim about me. Present your evidence. I will remain silent because there is a presumption of innocence. And we see here that Jesus, well within his right to do so, he remains silent. He remains silent. Now, after all of their false evidence is presented, he could have, he could have put on a defense. He could have torn the arguments apart. But Jesus remained silent. He was an innocent man, and all of the uh, evidence, the so-called evidence that was brought against him, was a fabrication. And I've asked, kind of, if if you could, kind of imagine putting yourself in that situation. Where the accusations come against you, and they come against you, and it's all a lie, and you know it's a lie, but you remain silent. You could prove that it was all a lie. You could prove it just like that, but you remain silent. The power of our Savior, the willpower, the determination, the Bible tells us that for the prize that was set before him, he endured the pain, even the pain of the cross. And we read in Matthew 27, 46, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, which is Jesus on the cross quoting from Psalm 22, and he's saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Friends, he did indeed suffer. He suffered to purchase and to forgive me and to forgive you, to bring us into fellowship, which had been broken, and this is important, had been broken in the first Adam. Everyone in this room, you are born the first time 
in the physical, and you are born under Adam, you are born spiritually dead. And that is why we need the second Adam who came. And this Adam was flawless. He was perfect. He didn't make the same mistake that our great, 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 many great times grandfather made. And so we put on the new Adam and we have that second birth to be, what's the phrase? Born again. Born of the Spirit. We are brought to life. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to those who would call upon his name. And we have that second birth. And I'm not going to stay on this theme forever. It's not going to be the only theme for the whole day. We're not going to only talk about the suffering and the death of Christ. But we do need to think about it. We need to think about the death of our Savior. Why, as Christians, do we make such a big deal about the death of Christ? There's that question. Why? Because in his death, we have found life. What? That is crazy talk. That's the opposite. How is it that somebody dies and you find life? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Brings us to our second point, and that is the life of Christ, the life that we have in Christ. And I kind of broke this down into two sections, the life of Christ before the cross and the life of Christ after the cross. So we've talked about his suffering. We've talked about the cross. Now let's talk about the life of Christ before the cross. He performed miracles and signs and wonders, and our Bible is full of these. I strongly encourage everyone here to read your Gospels again. Even if you think you're familiar with the story, read it again. The Holy Spirit will meet you there, and he will teach you, and he will guide you, just as he promised that he would. And you'll pick up something that you didn't see the last time. You can never, ever exhaust the depths of the word of the living God. So get into your Gospels and read these stories. The last verse in John, in the Gospel of John, he says, There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Folks, that's a lot of signs and wonders and miracles. And why did Jesus do that? He did it because it was a testimony of who he is. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. I love the story. Maybe you've heard it. It's not in the notes. But the story of where the woman who has the issue of blood, she says, if I could just touch his garment, if I could just touch his garment, I would be healed. That's the kind of power that we have in our Savior. Not only did he heal the sick, but he fed the 5,000. And we know the story there. And he did even more, John says, even more than is recorded. Now we know that as a precursor to things that would come, Jesus called a dead man named Lazarus. Do you remember the story about Lazarus? He called Lazarus back from the dead, called him to life. I'm timing myself this morning. I don't want to keep you guys here too late. But I have so much to cover. Am I doing okay? Okay. Like I said last Sunday, you know, I'm from kind of a Baptistic background. I'm not that anymore. I'm reformed now. But that's the background I'm from. And one of the things we used to do in a Baptist church, we would say amen. It's okay if you let me know. If if I hear an amen, I'm not going to, you know, 
get nervous or anything. And I like those words of affirmation. So if you feel like I've said something good, then you can say amen. Amen? Amen. All right, good. So we find here uh, in that story in John 11, it's talking about Lazarus. Jesus is ministering in another town. Lazarus, you may remember, he's the brother of uh, Mary and Martha. And uh, we find that this messenger comes to where Jesus is at. And he says, Jesus, the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, they have need of you. They want you to come and um, heal Lazarus. He's sick. And Lazarus lived in a nearby town. If you read the story, it's in John 11. And it's two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And um, I already said he was a brother of Mary and Martha. And we know from the story and from the uh, scriptures that Jesus had prior uh, relations with these folks. He had been to their house. He had enjoyed their friendliness and their hospitality. You may even remember the story where it's um, Martha who um, had lodged that complaint with Jesus because Mary was at the feet of Jesus and she was listening. You remember that story? And Martha says, hey, she needs to come help me in the kitchen. That's basically my paraphrase. It's not the King James Version, but it's my James Version of what happened. It's okay to smile. It's all right. You can smile or laugh or not if I'm not that funny. But anyway, according to John, Jesus receives the message that Lazarus is ill. And he waits Two days before he even departs. And he tells his disciples, this is a sickness not unto death, but that, that the glory of God would be shown, that the, that the Son would be glorified. And then he goes on to tell his disciples, and just pause and think about that for a minute. Would God actually allow something harsh, as harsh as an illness, as harsh as something that would make Lazarus die all so that the son could be glorified? Yes, he would. We go through hard times. I've never been sick to the point that I died, but I've been sick. Okay? <laughs> and maybe you've gone through some things too. Not just physical sickness, but other things in life come your way. Would God allow that? Absolutely. It is for your good and it is for his glory. It is for your good. And it is for his glory. And we forget that sometimes. Because we think that everything is just supposed to be smooth sailing all the time. No problems ever. No situations. No struggles. After all, I'm a Christian, right? But that's not what it's about. It's, it is for your good. And it is for his glory. So we see here that Jesus, getting back to our story, he tells the disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And they didn't get it. And I try not to, you know, say many bad things about the disciples because I look at their lives and I see myself. And then he has to tell them plainly, no, guys, what I mean is when I said he's asleep and I'm going to go wake him up, I mean he's dead. Okay, he's dead. And they try to talk him out of it. They say, hey, you know, if you go back over there, the Jews want to stone you. They've already been plotting at this point. And something amazing happens. Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. Now, it's a little bit beyond the scope of this, and I don't want to belabor the point, but 
there's an important thing that you need to know about, about the culture back then. There was a belief among some Jews that when a person died, that their spirit remained for three days. It would kind of hover around the body or be in the area. Jesus waits four days before he calls Lazarus. I just think that's interesting. Now, what I'm telling you, it's not in the Bible anywhere. And you can take it or leave it. But I think that Jesus was saying, I'm going to prove to you that the spirit has departed the body. Lazarus is dead and I have the power to bring him back to life. And then the Bible tells us that when Lazarus came back to life, that the Jews actually wanted to kill Lazarus because they were already plotting against Jesus. And you can't very well have somebody who was dead walking around saying, no, he really is the son of God. I was dead and he brought me back to life. That kind of would be evidence going against what they were trying to collect against our Lord. But here's another reason that all these miracles and all these signs were done. And this is only one. I'm just happened to be talking about Lazarus here. But they were all done because Jesus was communicating to all who would hear him that he is the giver of life. And John 6 verses 64 through 68, you'll read the story there where Jesus actually tells the crowds that no one can come to him. Pause. No one can come to him. No one can come to him unless the Father grants it. People do not want to hear that today. I can assure you they don't want to hear it. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. And the Bible tells us that after Jesus taught that, that many people went away and they did not walk with him anymore. It is a hard teaching for people to understand. And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, the one that we spoke about just last week, we were speaking about Peter. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, where can I go? You have the words of eternal life. So you see, what's coming out there is anybody who can do these great things. And here's what convinced the disciples. And he even tells them in the story of Lazarus. He says, it's a good thing that you guys weren't there. Because I'm about to do something and you are going to believe when I bring Lazarus back from the dead. He did all of these things. All of these things, they had to be done to fulfill the scriptures and to point to the fact that he is the son of the living God. And we know from the scriptures that the suffering servant had to go to the cross. He had to suffer. But we also know, and this is the second point of that, life after the cross. There's another resurrection that's coming. Not just Lazarus, but Jesus himself. Once again, he proves his messiahship. And he proves that he is God in the flesh. The eternal son who took on human form and walked among us. Friends, that is powerful. God walked among men. And in the last chapter of Matthew, it records what happened on the day that our Lord defeated the grave. There's that scripture. He is not here. He is 
risen. And we, on Easter we say that. He is risen. And then we say, he is risen indeed. Well, at least I used to say that in another church. I don't know what we do here. But it's okay. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. There's only one who has the power over death, hell, and the grave. And that is God. Later in that same chapter, we have what's called the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, therefore what? Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe the things that I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do we behave that way? Do I behave that way? Like Christ is the authority. And he has told us, now go make disciples of all the nations. I've given you the authority. I have the authority. You are doing it in my name. So we remember that all authority has been given to the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave. And we have life in Christ. Not only through his death upon the cross... Not only through all that suffering, but he did rise from the dead and he ascended. And now he sits at God's right hand. And that makes us think about point number three, the new covenant. The new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, listen, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more And that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete friends the writer of Hebrews is telling us here that there was a new covenant coming for the people of God and indeed it was necessary so I want us to consider two things here as we think about the new covenant the new covenant God with his people the first point is God's condescension to man condescension Meaning that, because we don't really use that word, condescend, the way it was in the 1600s. We've kind of changed definitions a little bit. But what we mean by that when we talk about God's condescension to man, we're talking about God, the God of the universe, the almighty, the all-powerful, the eternal self-existent being coming down to my level. Psalm 35 reminds us, it says, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is is for life weeping may endure for the night but joy comes 
in the morning. So God restrains his just and righteous anger and he graciously enters into this new covenant with his servants. God being eternally self-existent, as I just said, and always complete, totally self-complete. He has no need for a covenant. God doesn't make a covenant because he needs to have a covenant. He doesn't do it that way. The covenant is something that he entered into with us. God being totally free in every way has no need to be bound. Yet he binds himself to his people. See, God is true. And thus we know that we can humbly expect, humbly expect, that is not the same as demanding of God. But we can expect that he will perform his promise. Why? Because God is true. And that leads me to my second sub point here. Man's only hope for good things and true joy is in the new covenant. We know that God does good things. Psalm 119, 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. God comes into a covenant with his people, and this is for man's good. Our relationship with God through Christ is deep, full, and it's like an overflowing well. Indeed, the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. And this covenant gives us the right and the freedom and the assurance to go to him and find forgiveness of sins. But even more than forgiveness of sins, he offers us relationship with him that was not possible before. We can be confident that he will give according to his promise. God has caused a special relationship between him and us. Between him and us. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says... For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? He says, I'm an heir according to the promise. What promise is that? It's the promise of the new covenant. We are children of God. And we know this is true because our God is faithful and true. Not only to us, but he is true within himself. In other words, let me put it this way. He does not break his promise. He doesn't break his promise. We're now made family and we can now approach God as father. Not our judge. But we are joint heirs with Christ. And this is, as the Puritans would have said so many years ago, a strong consolation and confidence. So what, we, what do we remember when we come to the table? And we are getting ready to partake in this celebration now. What do we remember? We remember not only the Lord's death, but we remember his life. We remember that he conquered death And that he has promised the same for those who have placed their faith in Christ. We remember that our God, though under no constraints to do so, willingly entered into a new covenant with his people. And let's contemplate that today. Let's contemplate how the word of God and the table combine to teach us.
and help us to apply the truth of the gospel. Think about that new covenant and his law that is now written on your heart. As it says in the Bible, he took out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Just like Lazarus, you were dead and he has brought you to life. Remember that, yes, he died for our sins, but he has risen from the dead and he now sits at God's right hand. Let us remember that our king is truly mighty to save. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. take this cup and we drink it unto thee this cup is the covenant of your blood shed for me and as often as we do we We take this breath.